Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Forrester CXCast. Sam Stern, joined as always by Jenny Wise. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. And Jenny and I are not joined by anyone else this week because <laughs> I am talking to Jenny about her research on voice experiences, voice interfaces. How do you design these experiences based around these voice interfaces well? So you're writing a series, a collection, a group, a trio of reports <laughs> about voice experiences. Can you just maybe give us the lay of the land quickly? What what can our listeners, when they become our readers, expect to see, to, to read, to find in your digital voice experience research? Yeah. We'll call it the trifecta. I have the voice trifecta <laughs> coming out soon. Um, and so what it is, is it's a collection of three reports that just happened because I was doing this research, there was so much to say and so much to cover that um, it was entirely too much for, for just one piece of research. And so what it is going to talk about first looking at, so what are digital voice experiences? What do we mean by a digital voice experience? How do customers perceive and expect digital voice experiences? Um, then we'll look at sort of the promise and peril of mm. digital voice experiences. So as we know, everyone is talking about them. Clearly there is something there, um, something companies want to invest in, something companies want or customers want to engage with, but also they're not all great today. It's test and learn. So what does that landscape look like? And then we'll get into how to design for digital voice experiences. So if one and two didn't scare you off and you're going to, to pilot this, um, how do you do it effectively? And that's going to look at what is the design process that you go through and how do you augment it to incorporate some of the new components that arise when you look at voice and sort of emerging technologies broadly. How do you design voice experiences? I, I guess, you know, what I'm, I'm struck by there is I'm picturing, you know, what the image that pops into my head is of toddlers shouting at Alexa. <laughs> is that research, Jenny? Is that how it works? Yes. How, yeah. how do they, how do you sort of do, research do yeah, ethnographic <laughs> user research here for voice interfaces? So that is sort of what we're looking at. So. <laughs> okay, I was kidding, but I guess I wasn't. <laughs> well, so that's what we get into in the sort of promise and peril of voice, right? Yeah. Um, voice seems so natural. So many of these emerging technologies that we're beginning to implement in new devices and interfaces promise more natural, intuitive interactions. So thinking of voice, a conversation, right? We have that right now. This is, this is natural. Right. It is more natural than me typing into a website, right, to try to get the information that I need. But... It is also completely unnatural to have this type of interaction with a device. Right. Right. Because I, I don't know what to expect from it. I don't know how to speak to it. And so that example of children is actually really interesting because here, you know, they know how to talk to their parents, to their friends. Do they know how to talk to this Alexa hardware? <laughs> and when they start yelling at it and being really rude, you know, as right. a parent, do you right. correct that? Because that's rude if that was a person, but right. it's not a person. So right. should they interact with it like it's a person? And, you know, what's going on there? That's part of it. That yeah. displays part of the what's going on. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. And what's different? I mean, I guess that's a sort of aspect of the research that might be getting at sort of the natural language capabilities, the error recovery, if you didn't, the interface didn't understand what the user's question was or intent was. But, you know, what is the design process look like for, for voice interfaces? 
Yeah. So when we're thinking about the design process, essentially what we're trying to solve for in this scenario is, you know, how do we make an experience that is successful, that doesn't have a kid screaming at Alexa um, or an adult screaming at Alexa and has Alexa responding as the person expects them to. And so we look at the typical design process. So a lot of the listeners are probably familiar with this from sort of empathizing with the customer, defining what the problem is that you're trying to solve, ideating solutions, prototyping them, and then validating and testing, right? And sort of iterating until you have something ready to launch. And so that's still the process that you're going yep. to be using. But what we find is that the human and the technology factors are so different, sort of mm. fundamentally different than how it has been designing for a website, which is much more established and understood, that people have to augment the way that they go through those steps by either using new tools or even just asking new questions, right? Hmm. And implementing new types of methods or even old methods in new ways. It is still using the design process, but making sure that you're asking different questions and looking for different things along the way. So one of the questions will sort of go through this process here. Right now, <laughs> for example, people are listening to this podcast. Uh, they cannot see that I'm here and I'm gesturing and I'm trying to point to things in the sky to accentuate my points. They can only rely on my voice. Right. And so that alone is something that's new because rarely have designers, especially digital designers, creating experiences that rely solely on audio as a modality. Yeah. Okay. I, I get that. I because I, I'm um, I'm picturing. Well, you know, oh, we talk to people in call centers. We talk to IVRs. But to your point, the digital interfaces that these are most maybe adjacent to, there's no voice necessarily involved, right? Yeah. And so that's thing. I, I talk to a person. Right. Right. So a lot of voice interactions today have been a person. Voice interactions themselves are not new. As you mentioned, I I walk into a store, I talk to someone there, I call someone up on the phone, but I know that there's a human on the other side. Um, We're talking about the scenario where it's not a human, right? It's a a system that I'm talking to. And so you have to understand how does the system need to respond? When is the customer going to talk to the system? How do they expect the system to respond back to them? And also you have to think about new considerations just because of the modality. I could rattle off 12 facts right now. People would only be able to hold seven of them, (laughs) plus or minus two, just based on sort of cognitive load and working memory capacity. Right. Right. That is a human limitation capability that we all have. And so that becomes exacerbated with voice where I say it and then it goes away. So I can't look at all the options on the screen. I have to hold this in my working memory. Okay. That's a great example. I had never thought of that. Good for you, by the way. You retained at least one fact from the uh, Bentley uh, yeah. MSHFID <laughs> program, the seven plus yeah. or minus two. Right. But um, yeah, oh, that's great. The persistence of the information isn't there with voice because they say it and then it's in your working memory or it's not. And especially it's yeah. not if it moves on to telling you the next thing. Right, right. right. Yeah. And then sort of how do, I, how do I go back to that third thing that you said when you're yeah. rattling off the right. 20th recipe to me? Right. Um, and so that Right. So that's something different that you now have to think about. Also, what if I'm in a really busy room and there's a lot of ambient noise? Can I even hear what the device is saying back to me? And so those are just some things that are different from the human 
component of it, sort of the user side of this interaction design. And so therefore, when you're going through the empathize process, sort of to bring it back to the design process here, you have to look at, you know, not just what do they want on this website or how are they clicking the website, but what is the human capability to process auditory information? What are the context and scenarios where this makes sense? And so one example here was a office supply company wanted to use voice. And so you can think about the scenario where the office assistant was going to use this sort of voice device to reorder supplies. And so if you're just sitting in the office and not there seeing how the office assistant does this, you might say, well, great, we'll put this device on their desk and they'll just sort of rattle off supplies as they go and that's fine. And then the company that was working um, with this office supply company actually went into the office did some ethnographic research, saw how this sort of office assistant went about their day, and they found that, you know what, it's really loud at their desk. There's too much ambient noise. This isn't a process that makes sense. Mm. But then they did find that when they were in the office supply closet, where it's very quiet and they're Mm. looking through supplies, that's actually a great condition voice. And so that's something that without doing the sort of ethnographic research to see the lay of the land and the context in which they would use their voice, right, and the other sort of contextual factors that would impact the use of voice, they might not have been able to come to that better conclusion, right? Or they might have prototyped something that didn't make any sense. So that's an example of making sure that you are taking into account the user context. Yeah. That's great. I really like that example. It, for whatever reason, for me, it brings to mind a, a sitcom set where, you know, the primary mode, because there's something artificial to the ethnographic research process as much as we like to say, okay, we're going to come observe you, but you're there. You know, the yeah. observer principle is distorting the experience. And the primary set is the living room or it's their desk. But this other set that they don't use that often, but is this sometimes where really critical moments, you know, in the story happen, the supply closet, right, where they actually could benefit from voice. Their hands might not be free, so they they need, you know, hands-free interface. Mm -hmm. It's quiet enough that they can do this. They're making sure that the supplies are stocked, so it's absolutely the place and time and context where they would be reordering. Uh, That's a really good example. And I don't know why I'm thinking of a sitcom set, but I'm just picturing them going off to, you know, we're having the family meal (laughs) in the dining room that you see only every fifth episode on on the, you know, modern family set or whatever it is. Yeah, totally. Um, okay, that makes sense. So that's great. So so that's a, you know, maybe sort of broader thinking about ethnographic research and testing the ambient noise levels for technology. So seeing some of these different elements come into maybe a standard design process. Any other examples jump out at you? Yeah. So this is still looking at the research phase of sort of empathizing with the customer. And so this is also where, you know, ethnographic research, again, not a new method, but it's something that becomes really critically important when you're looking at how people would use these emerging technologies. You would also want to do this too for other emerging technologies like VR. You know, how do people feel when they can't see anything else in the room and their vision is completely obscured? And is this something that they're comfortable sort of doing in the office if there's some type of VR training experience? Do they want to be in a separate space, right? You sort of really need to see sort of the human dynamic using these new technologies. Something else with research too that isn't new but maybe hasn't been applied is the acknowledgement of all these real human interactions that are already existing that you're trying to mimic with a digital interaction. Mm. As you mentioned, voice, not new. People are already talking to your company. So make sure that you're really working with the people that they're already talking to to understand why do they talk to them? What questions do they talk about? Do they say... You know, I want to check my account balance when they call the bank 
Or do they say, you know, how much money do I have? Right. Or, right. you know, what was that last check? Or did right. that clear? And so that's just sort of tapping into a resource that traditionally might not be tapped into. You're getting at some of the maybe generalizable research method, you know, things to keep in mind at least yeah. for not just voice interfaces, definitely an emerging technology, but other emerging right. technologies like VR. I think one of the challenges that I see and we often hear and that companies will joke about with us about emerging mm-hmm. technologies is just the attraction of the shiny object. And so mm-hmm. I wonder how do you how do you sort of counsel against that, you know, not chasing client use cases with the technology, you know, trying to, you know, cram it into every possible one, but but really abstracting from the need, from the possibility of the client use cases, especially when I guess, you know, there's sort of that gap between I don't know what I would use VR for because I never have. I don't know what I would use a voice interface in my home for because I'm not in the habit of calling Amazon or another company whenever Mm -hmm. I have a a quick question. How do you sort of modulate between those sort of two poles, right? That you want to be user-based, but users don't necessarily have a frame to give you feedback about because these are not technologies they're comfortable using. Yeah. So, so a lot of people haven't had these interactions, yeah. as you've mentioned, right? And so we know 14% of people have a voice assistant speaker today. Um, they're using it primarily as a speaker, right, or to get information <laughs> right. or um, to just do command control and not really have a conversation with. Um, and so it's hard to distill from them exactly what they want, although you can sort of ask a, a panel to a focus group with people to ask them, you know, what went well, what didn't go well, why do you continue to use this, why did you abandon this specific? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there is that more exploratory sort of blue sky, which is while maybe someone has never used an Alexa or Google Home or one of these other devices, that can actually be good because they're not already biased by what the interaction is, but they can think more broadly about what it could be. Mm -hmm. Right. So Mm -hmm. what is a scenario where you really needed to get access to information, but you couldn't, right? Why couldn't you? Um, And maybe that reason is, for example, me, terrible directions. (laughs) I was trying to drive somewhere over Thanksgiving, then I had to go somewhere else, and so I had to change the direction. And so I had to like pull over on the side of the road to try to change the direction to make sure I was doing it right and not getting lost along the way. And I was sitting there thinking, well, why can't I just tell my phone that like I need them to redirect me here? And so that was a moment where I was like, oh, I really could use this. Like my hands are busy. I can't put this much cognitive effort into this task because I need to be focused on the road where I already don't know where I'm going because I've never been in this town. Yeah. Um, I need to be able to use my voice here, right? I need this shortcut. Um, And so that's also this sort of blue sky scenario where you can sort of see where are people currently doing workarounds and where are pain points um, and where could voice be something to overcome that pain point. That's also, I'll just say really quickly, where this can go wrong. Yeah. Um, is I've also talked to companies who, you know, have said, like, we want to launch a, a cooking app. So, like, what's the best content that we should put in it? And I'm like, well, why are you using this cooking app? They're like, oh, because, like, it's going to be great. You can just talk to it. I was like, oh, well, is that easier for me than just pulling up the recipe and, and looking at it? They're like, well, you know, it's not easier, but you can talk to it. <laughs> it's like, well, then why am I as a person, as a user going to choose this like unfamiliar modality yeah. that I'm going to have to onboard to instead of what's already existing when it's not better? Yeah. Um, so that's also where trying to understand these current workaround or pain points with what already exists yeah. can highlight an opportunity. Yeah, that's a really interesting challenge. And, and, and what you're raising there is striking to me because I'm a skeptic, I would say, about these 
interfaces. I don't want Alexa in my home. Seems creepy. Me too. Seems creepy. Me too. So, I cover it. <laughs> um, but what you just said, I was like, oh, actually, I see a use case for this. So, like, I cook a lot and use recipes on my phone. I don't want to talk to Alexa about a recipe, but I do. What I often do is I have to pop out of the app where I have the recipe to my Google search app to look up how much a cup of sugar weighs in grams or whatever, mm-hmm. like some mm-hmm. measurement thing like that. That would be the use case to keep me in the one app to say, you know, Alexa, how much does a cup of sugar weigh in grams? So I can weigh it out as I'm measuring it and remind myself or whatever it is, or, you know, what's a replacement for buttermilk, blah, blah, blah. And that's an interesting use case that where it yeah. keeps you in the flow of what you're doing, but able to get this contextual information that helps you complete your, your main task. Oh, maybe I'll get an Alexa speaker now. Okay, now I'm, yeah. I'm talking myself into this. But and yeah, but, that skill. But, but that's the <laughs> thing where voice is actually additive to the existing flow rather than replacing it. Right. When I didn't, I never asked them to replace it. Right. But I do have all these sort of tangential needs that would be helpful to, to get yeah. voice solving with. Yeah. So. And that's also sort of just thinking about voice broadly here, a bit of a tangent. A good use case for voice, essentially having it be your shortcut across information architecture and channels yes. that already exist. Yes, yes, right? yes. So yes. I can say, get me this information, not have to navigate through the menu and select and go through in page navigation. Right. I just say it and it gets me there. Yeah. Um, that is a great use case for voice. And so that's what you were just saying. Right, right? exactly. Like, All the internet is accessible through my voice command <laughs> yeah. and it will just pop up. No, it's a great point. It, it, it basically created a new pathway within the existing information architecture on my phone with all the apps and different places they reside to say, I'm just hopping over there seamlessly. Yeah, right. that's a great way to think about it. Good. Well, Jenny, you shared with us uh, what the design process looks like for digital voice interfaces. Listeners, if you were paying attention, I'm sure you were. There were some really nice insights about how to consider the broader context, things like ambient noise, things like uh, how ethnographic research changes a little bit when you're designing voice interfaces, and the transferability of that knowledge gained to other emerging interfaces like VR so you can have more empathy, uh, more context in the design process. So thank you, Jenny, for sharing that. Uh, Listeners, we'll talk to you all on next week's CXCast. If you have feedback or questions about this week's episode, please email us at cxcast, one word, at forrester.com. And remember, your customer's perceptions is your customer experience reality.